Tuesday, January 7th, 2021. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Phil Runyon. And tonight we will review The Lost Pillars of Enoch by Tobias Churton, 2021. This is an important book on one of the most important themes underlying the Western esoteric tradition. The legendary secret wisdom of the antediluvian civilization from before the biblical flood that inspired later astrologers, alchemists, magicians, Kabbalists, Freemasons, and Rosicrucians from the first century to the present. Beginning with Enoch's two pillars, as recalled in Josephus, Churton follows the ancient wisdom theme through hermetic and alchemical writings and on into the beginnings of masonry, he cites the remarkable account of Scottish explorer James Bruce, who brought the first copies of the Book of Enoch out of Ethiopia. And he reveals that Isaac Newton was an alchemist and a Freemason. He carries his theme of ancient wisdom on through Blavatsky to Crowley, giving us a Philosophical History of the Western Esoteric Tradition. This book is highly recommended. No, actually, this is a book I wish I had written myself. It deals with an underlying theme of the Western Esoteric Tradition or the Western Mysteries, if you need to regionalize it. As we have often stated, the Western tradition is based on biblical and classical mythology. Central to both is the theme of ancient wisdom from a golden age, somehow surviving inscribed on artifacts such as Enoch's Lost Pillars. We all know about Enoch and his book detailing the legacy of the fallen angels. Yes, we know about it, but only the Ethiopians actually had the book until 1783 when a Scottish Freemason, James Bruce, brought four copies back to Europe from Africa. Discovering the Book of Enoch is as close as we have come yet to finding the Lost Pillars of Enoch. Churton starts his search with the Jewish historian Josephus right before the first century in Alexandria. Josephus probably had access to the Book of Enoch at that time, and which inspired the Lost Pillars of Wisdom legend that he launched in his history of the Jewish people called Antiquities. The legend was picked up by the alchemist Zosimos and the Gnostic and Hermetic writers of the same period in Alexandria. It continued to influence the Western esoteric community through the Dark Ages, the medieval era, and into the Renaissance. Another important element of this ancient wisdom is the widespread belief in an original world religion. It was thought to have been monotheistic and elemental. That's kind of a kind of a paradox, but, but the works of Hermes Trismegistus were an expression of this idea and became the theology of the Western mysteries. Recovering this ancient perfect religion was the goal of many mystics and magicians. Churton ends his book with an appeal for a new religion which would incorporate these ancient ideals. 
Well, to that end, of course, I would suggest Valentini and Christianity. But I think uh, Churton would probably opt for Thelema. But I said... <laughs> I can't imagine Thelema as a world religion because, uh, uh, you know, the, there's that famous line from, from the Book of the Law, you know, as brothers fight ye, and we've had enough of that. And, and a world religion should, should actually strive for world peace. With that short summary, let's get into the book itself. And uh, we start off with Josephus in the first chapter. Churton says... It may surprise readers that we have no way of knowing specifically where the authors of Genesis, or Josephus himself, thought the antediluvian leaders of the human race lived. The creative world, at least as people in antiquity knew it, was their oyster, so to speak. And Josephus believed that when Seth appeared, there was no place called Egypt or Judea for that matter. According to Moses, Genesis' supposed author, the world's geographically diffused population originally sharing one language and one religion derived from Noah's children, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Certainly, Josephus was aware that the promised land had no meaning until promised to Abraham following Genesis. Abraham is placed by Josephus in northern Mesopotamia, described anachronistically as Chaldea, on the Euphrates side, around Haran or Pandamaram, and sometimes somewhere called Ur, which I strongly suspect refers to a region of Ratu, the biblical Ararat. And I want to digress at this point and say that one of the problems, I, I think, with Churton's book is that he, he frankly rejects the usual Ice Age postulation of this Golden Age. Most writers, especially today, postulate the pre-flood uh, Antediluvian civilization was an Ice Age civilization. And that would be, you know, about 12,000 years ago, when the sea level was much lower than it is now, they postulate this maritime civilization, which most everybody equates with Atlantis. But because Churton is an academic, he doesn't want to use the A word. He finally, had two-thirds of the way through the book, he finally breaks down and, and, and mentions Atlantis. But he tries to avoid mentioning it as much as he can in the first part of the book. And yet Atlantis is all over the Mediterranean and the later in biblical terminology. Atlantis, that 12,000-year-old, you know, that Ice Age uh, civilization, that is uh, is this golden age that uh, the Enoch's pillars would, would have been laid down. But Churton, like most of the conservatives, he does not want to mention Atlantis, and he doesn't want to he doesn't want to get that far back. And so he consequently there's no mention whatsoever. Well, he puts down Hancock, and he and he goes. And in fact, I'll, I'll read a series of put downs he has here on the whole alien, uh, you know, ancient alien 
crowd, of which, of course, I'll admit that we're also a part of, you know, with uh, trying to revive the Shaver mystery. He has a kind of an axe to grind with Hancock. He doesn't even like Hancock at all. The problem is that we could go along with him except for Godeki Tepe. And, of course, a few thousand years later than Godeki Tepe, we had Kato Huyuk, and he doesn't mention either one of them. And he, frankly, he's not really uh, filling out his... uh, is an Antediluvian theme at all. He's kind of trying to, in a way, trying to avoid it. But then again, on the other hand, uh, we'll forgive him because uh, he's taking a nice conservative approach and putting the, you know, putting the flood back back when Bishop Usher and, and tagged it about six thousand years ago. The Enoch pillars they enter the uh, the Hermetic tradition through Zothemus and all. And as I said, Josephus. A century before the Common Era, Josephus probably had access to a copy of the Book of Enoch. He probably did. And the legend of the pillars probably derived from that. And then this idea of the lost pillars, which would preserve the high civilization and the the, uh, concept of the unified Unified religion would be conserved on these pillars. Now, in line with this, uh, I'd like to mention that the pillars in our temple have serpents wrapped around them like the Samothracian pillars do. And on those serpents, one of them is gold, one of them silver. On those serpents, we have the what we uh, what we refer to as the laws of old. That's the uh, the laws. Uh, of Atlantis, there were ten laws on the, on the pillar, on the Atlantean pillar, and so we have these laws, and, and they're in they're in Dzenokian. And by the way, Dzenokian, John Dee, did not have a copy of the Book of Enoch. He knew about it. He knew about the Book of Enoch, and he even prayed to God to reveal it to him, but he did not have it. So John Dee invented invented the Book of Enoch psychically. He and Kelly got together and they and they scried up their own Book of Enoch. And, and then about 150 years later, James Bruce came back, no, more than 150 years, no, over 200 years later, James Bruce came back from Ethiopia with four copies of the Book of Enoch. And by the way, Churton's book has the best account of James Bruce's adventures that I have I have read yet. I've read several accounts of James Bruce's adventures, including uh, his uh, attempts to find the source of the Nile. That's how he got into Ethiopia, by the way, because the Nile forks. And down in the Sudan, the Nile, or the Khartoum, the Nile forks into two directions. One is the White Nile, and that goes on down to Lake Victoria. And the other is the Blue Nile, which goes on in, 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 into Ethiopia. And Bruce, whereas Burton and Speak followed the White Nile uh, later, Bruce followed the Blue Nile and on into Ethiopia. And Churton's account of Bruce's adventures is better than any account I have read yet. And, and really fascinating. He, re, he reveals that that the Ethiopians and the Kushites actually preceded the Egyptians. They were, according to what Bruce and the Ethiopians said, they were before 
Moreau and the Sudan and the Kushites in Ethiopia were, were before the ancient Egyptians. And, of course, this is probably why Budge, you know, uh, the great Egyptologist in the British Museum, why he said that Egyptian religion and Egyptian culture comes out of Africa. And that was probably based upon uh, based on uh, Bruce's uh, early, early archaeology. Now, that's kind of, we're kind of putting the cart before the horse here because Bruce was, that was 17, in the 1750s. And Bruce was a Freemason. That's how Enochian, uh, how the, the, the 13th degree in Scottish right, you know, the Royal Arch degree, that's how, how it got into, uh, in, into, uh, into masonry. It was in masonry even earlier than Solomon. They had that way back when masonry first got started. They were more into antediluvian heroes like Nimrod and Enoch than they were into Solomon. Solomon came later. And interestingly enough, the 13th degree, uh, the Royal Arch of Enoch, they combined Enoch's subterranean uh, chamber with Solomon's temple. And so in good Masonic fashion, we, we, we get it all together. Carrying this on through from uh, Alexandria through to the Italian Renaissance. And he has a, a wonderful, wonderful section on Pico della Mirandola. And this is another, that this is one of the best commentaries on Pico della Mirandola I have read yet. And it, well, it owes a lot to Francis Yates, uh, to uh, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic tradition. And by the way, he does, Churton uh, does very well with Giordano Bruno too. And you know we have we have covered uh, Francis Schatz's Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition on the Hermetic Hour, and it's one of the core books that you have to read if you're studying magic these days. And that's that's Francis Schatz, 1965, Giordano Bruno and the Hermetic Tradition. And Bruno Bruno also went along with this idea of the early religion, and it was a solar religion. Of course, Hermetic philosophy is very solar. And Egyptian philosophy is solar. So Giordano Bruno, as you may recall, was burned at the stake in 1614. Poor guy. He was a follower of Copernicus, and he believed that, of course, the the Earth revolved around the sun, uh, and the planets revolved around the sun. The sun was at the center of the solar system. And that was Copernicus's theory. But that was not accepted by the church at the time. And... You know, with Giordano Bruno, it wasn't that they didn't burn him at the stake because he followed Copernicus. It was because he said, well, if the earth revolves around the sun, then that means that the sun is the physical representation of God. Well, of course, Copernicus kind of hinted at the same thing, but Copernicus got away with it, but Bruno did not. And it's almost as if the church the church had to burn somebody and they couldn't burn Copernicus because he died the same year he published his theory. So they burned Bruno. Poor guy, he got burned at the stake for, for saying that, well, the son is the physical representation of God. And this was, uh, you know, uh, an example of this this early solar religion that mystics and philosophers all the way down to Manly Hall have gone along with, the idea that of the perpetuating the very ancient Antediluvian solar religion. And Churton goes ahead and he carries this ancient theme 
on through to uh, out to Arthur Slavy and and Helena Blavatsky, and she of course brings in the Eastern aspect, and you know according to Blavatsky, uh, Central Asia is the is the sort of the center of the of the world, uh, rather than Africa. Then he carries it on from from Blavatsky all the way on into Crowley. He kind of skips over the Golden Dawn, which is a shame. And he eulogizes Crowley because we know from from Churton's previous books that he is very, very, very fond of Crowley and and uh, and quite an apologist of Crowley. And I can understand that Crowley certainly was a genius, and he certainly was a a polymath. He was a jack of all trades and master of several of them. <laughs> Anybody that can play can play chess with uh, with uh, three people at the same time and beat all three of them, you know. <laughs> uh, but however, I really do dis- would, would disagree if Churton is trying to indicate that Thelema should be the religion of the future. No, I don't think so. I'm not so sure he's saying that, but he says we need a. He ends the book by saying we need a new religion. We need somehow or other to find this 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 ancient religion, this antediluvian religion, this one that all of the magicians were talking about, including Manley Hall, the original uh, all-encompassing religion. And, of course, uh, oh, you can imagine it would be solar. I, I suggest that Valentinian Christianity would be the best resurrection of, a, uh, of an ancient religion. And yet, as I said, the important thing about this book is that it reviews it reviews the whole idea of surviving ancient religion. Even though uh Churton puts down the ancient alien thing, I imagine he uh he, he got saturated by watching the History Channel or the British version of it. And I can understand that. It does get to be a little a little overwhelming. Uh and you keep wondering if all of this thing all of this happened, why don't we have more evidence of it? And yet, on the other hand, it's the ancient secrets uh, are being uncovered, you know, on a pretty regular basis. And this book puts all of this together, and it it fills it all out, and it, it gives you a great deal of food for thought, and I highly recommend it, and as I say, I wish I'd written it myself. It's, it's a beautiful book. And so... Uh, with that in mind, now that's uh, all we can say is this is one you definitely need to get to, to get and to read uh, in the Hermetic tradition. Now, next week we're going to delve into another book from the same period, the same period as the as the Sibylline Oracles, and the same period as as the Hermetic treatises. It is an apocryphal book, at least it's. The Protestants consider it apocryphal. The Roman Catholics accept it. It's called The Wisdom of Solomon. And The Wisdom of Solomon is a remarkable book. It is an early confirmation of the Soma Sophia, uh, the goddess of heaven, the queen of heaven. And it sort of confirms uh, that Father El and Mother Asherat are, are still, the, you know, the god and the goddess of both the Gnostics, the Canaanites, and and, of course, the Valentinian Christians. And so next week we'll be delving into the wisdom of Solomon and also Carl Jung's book, Answer to Job, which is fascinating. And uh, so we got we got those two to look forward to next week. And, and until then, good magic.